0: Heavenly Father, we lift up our prayer to you this morning, asking that you would guide us through your scriptures. We pray that our heart would be a tablet, Lord Jesus, ready to receive the word of God, that it would be written there indelibly by the Spirit's use of the means of its proclamation today. We pray, Lord, that it would, that you would complete the work that you have begun in us More so this day as a consequence of setting our attention, our mind and affections upon that which you have revealed in your Holy Scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us our great need for a Savior. And the great relief that our souls felt when we realized our sins rolled upon his shoulders. I pray, Lord, that we would be awestruck and amazed. At the timeless plan and eternity past agreed to in the Trinity, fulfilled in the incarnation, satisfied on Calvary, secured upon resurrection, and enforced from the right hand of the Father through our ascended Christ, ruling this world and history by the power of his hand, I pray that you would press upon us awe-struck wonder at the reality of these things. Now as we open your scriptures, Please open our hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege it is to open Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 today. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 22 and let us read, first of all, verses 1 through 18 together. While you're turning there, there will be a second passage this morning. The context of our message today is to identify the parallels between Psalm 22 and where we have been studying in Matthew 27, the account of the crucifixion, and it will continue to the resurrection of Christ. The word of God is a contiguous whole, and today's passages prove as much, and I pray that we would be amazed as we see them today. Matthew 27, 45 through 50 will be our second passage this morning. So stand with me, if you would, out of reverence for the Word of God, and let us behold together Psalm 22, 1 through 18. Follow with me as I read. This psalm is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Verse 1, the Holy Word of God reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me, mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, first night. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 45. Now the sixth hour, from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of God. You may be seated. My aim for today's sermon is to demonstrate... That the Word of God is intrinsically the power to save and the power to stand. The Word of God is and the Word of God supplies. Power to save and power to stand. The Word of God instructs us and the Word of God is the power to save and the power to stand. The power to save us from our sins, to rescue us. From the hell and judgment, our wickedness and depravity deserves. And the power to cause us to stand firm in our faith. After regeneration, when God has changed our hearts, when he has demonstrated that with the fruits of repentance, our confession is Christ alone. The word of God supplies the power for us to stand until the day he calls us home, no matter the trials, no matter the temptations, in that confession. The title of today's message is Psalm 22 Comes Alive. That is to say, Psalm 22 comes to its fruition, its fulfillment, its climax. The characters that are prefigured in David's experience and prophesied in this psalm now fill in as the narrative of Calvary and resurrection unfolds. In Matthew's account of the cross, as we have been reading in Matthew 27, And Matthew's account of the cross of Jesus Christ, He, our Lord, lifts His voice only twice in Matthew's gospel. These utterances are recorded in our passage today. In Matthew 27, He is recorded as saying or speaking only twice, uttering only twice. In the first, we have these four words in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, and in the second, Verse 50, he cries out again with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. The last sound we hear from the cross is a loud cry piercing the premature darkness as Jesus Christ yields up his spirit, sovereignly offering up his own body as the once-for-all sacrifice for every believer in this room today and every believer for whom His blood was shed. Apart from this final moment, we have only four words, only four words spoken by our Lord from the cross to consider from Matthew's account. They are again, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. This appears in the text as a Greek transliteration. That is, it's recorded, the words of Aramaic are recorded in a Greek way. And this was the language spoken by Jesus from the cross. At this moment, these words are translated as follows. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words, as you have seen already in our scripture reading this morning, are a direct citation and fulfillment of Psalm 22. Again, Psalm 22.1 opens. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. In these two in this connection we see that these words, which are a direct citation and fulfillment of Psalm twenty two, recorded in Matthew twenty seven, we find that verse one in the Messianic Psalm of David points and anticipates the very words and work, it points forward and anticipates the very words and work of his Messiah Son to come the son of David would echo these words from his ancestor who was a type of himself. And so it proceeds, these words set the tone for the preceding verses, verses 1 through 18 of Psalm 22. The first half of Psalm 22 consider the redemptive work of Calvary, while verses 19 through 31, the second half of Psalm 22, which will consider at a later time, celebrate and proclaim the resurrection and the effects of the gospel. May this comparative study this morning remind us today of the supernatural power of the word and work of Almighty God in these moments of our salvation accomplished on Calvary's tree as we see them prophesied and fulfilled. This morning, I would like you to keep a finger in Psalm 22 and one in Matthew 27 as well. And we will see this morning under this heading, The Sufferings of Psalm 22, Fulfilled in Christ. We will see, in fact, how each one of them unfolds in perfect fulfillment and clarity in Matthew 27. Part, again, of the purpose of this message is to build your faith. Not only do we see as we compare these two passages... That the Word of God has the power to save, but also that the Word of God is, in fact, the self-attesting Word of God, and therefore it has the power for us to stand. It is not a mere newspaper story that we hold to as true and sound. Someone can write an accurate, that is to say, if you will, inerrant account of true events that happened. The Word of God is more than just an inerrant account of true events. It is an inerrant account of true events prophesied, fulfilled, interpreted, and applied. Therefore, these words that we are considering today not only contain the power to save, but the power to stand, and they demonstrate by themselves that they are authoritative, authentic, and active piercing asunder, they have the power to divide soul and spirit to save us from our sin, convict us of the same, and solidify our faith on the unshakable standard of righteousness, Jesus Christ, now and forever. The sufferings of Psalm 22 fulfilled in Christ, as we see in Matthew 27, could perhaps be summarized under three main points this morning. First of all, following the progression of thought in Psalm 22's glorious song, let's consider the solitary sufferings of Christ, that which he endured in his loneliness, in being cut off, banished, ostracized, put out of the city, outside the camp. Secondly, let us consider the sufferings of Christ, the social and psychological sufferings of Jesus, that which plagued his mind, that which came against him by way of false accusation and the relationships of the day that turned against him. And thirdly, let's consider the corporal sufferings of Christ, corporal meaning of the body, of the flesh, that which he endured and the agonizing, tearing, piercing and death of his own flesh and blood. First of all, in Psalm 22, 1 through 6, David prefigures, he proclaims, he prophesies the solitary sufferings of Jesus. Let us consider them again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Psalm 22, 1-6 through six expounds records in prophetic form, in worshipful song, the solitary sufferings of Christ, the rejection and the condemnation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The condemnation, meaning that he was made a curse for us. In Matthew 27, we see the situation, as we've considered recently, of this truth even in the geography, the location where Christ was crucified. In Hebrews, it identifies this as a pattern with the Old Testament text where sacrifices and things that were accursed were to be removed from the presence of the people and put outside the city. The priests often had the duty to inspect and to see whether a person stricken with disease was indeed unclean. And if so, they were put out of the presence of the people for a time until such time that they could be rendered clean again and then returned to fellowship. There are aspects of the sacrificial order and even the disposal of refuse and waste that necessarily happened outside the city. The picture is that that which was within the realm of fellowship and communion and day-to-day joyful interaction was to be the sacred, the pure, The clean, the cleansed, the sanctified, and the holy. And that which was wicked and cursed, debased and filthy and sinful was to be put outside the experience, the fellowship, and the relational interaction of the people. And so Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was made a curse for us. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us and was promptly marched outside the city walls and was crucified with the unclean on Golgotha on the hill of Calvary on a wicked cruel cross distant from any fellowship any love any affection any relationship made wicked and filthy for our sake this is the picture of the anguish of the soul in the condemnation of Christ, in his sufferings that he suffered alone outside the city, put away from even, in one sense, God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I, in this instance, uh, declared outside of your good graces, put out from the city this anguish of soul as he considers the loneliness of his sufferings in Tragic removal from that which he normally would partake of, the sweetness of fellowship and undying love and affection of God the Father within the triune Godhead. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Though he cried, the answer was not salvation at this time, but death. He cries from the Garden of Gethsemane, as you remember, O Lord, if it be possible, Let this cup be removed from me. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Later, we see him crying out in anguish again, even a third time, pleading with the Lord. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In these moments, again, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying out with the anguish of Psalm 22, Realizing that the cup of, cup of sufferings means banishment, condemnation, distance from that which is holy and that which is within the fellowship and the love of the Father. Outside the city, hanged on a tree, a public spectacle, like Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. That which was a curse to the people was lifted as a curse on the pole, and when they that curse, they We're saved. There is a paradox here. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, having been uh, identified as the curse, uh, Jesus Christ identified as becoming a curse for us is lifted up on the cross. And so all who look to him are saved. We see in the law that all who hang on a tree are declared a curse. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And we see even in the text of Psalm 22 that day and night are used to employ, as descriptive terms to employ, the anguish of the soul that Christ feels at this time. He cries by day, but he does not answer, and by night but finds no rest. And even on Calvary's cruel tree, we see in Psalm 45 that in the sixth hour there is darkness over all the land. And so the day became night as Christ cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, from the cross, echoing Psalm 22, now fulfilled in his very work on Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The condemnation of of the Son was here fulfilled. The words of Psalm 22 echoed from the very throat of our Savior, and his last recorded words in Matthew's gospel from the cross. Secondly, under the solitary sufferings of Christ, we see an interjection, a triune communion is going on. That is, Christ is speaking in the first person in David's song to God the Father. After crying out in anguish to the Lord, he affirms in verse 3, Yet you speaking of God the Father, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The solitary sufferings of Christ, though they vexed Him and caused Him anguish to the very core of His being, to the breaking point of His own sanity, and certainly the bleeding out of His own flesh. In spite of this, He acknowledges in Psalm 22 the reason... The ground for this very action in history. It is the holiness of God that leads Christ to the cross. There are three inter-Trinitarian, if you will. That is, God, the persons of the Godhead communicating with each other instances within Psalm 22. Interjections or asides where the Son and the Father communicate just as the Son did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Christ cries out, he affirms, yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of your people. In this confession, Jesus recognizes, in the words of, this, of David of old, the son of David affirms, he recognizes the ultimate reasons behind his sufferings. He is going to the cross because God is holy. And a holy God demands a sufficient payment to satisfy his justice for the great crimes of our sins, every one being a capital offense. For the scriptures say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is the gift of God? The gift of God is the killed, the crucified son. Therefore, the holiness of God was demonstrated in sending his son to Calvary to be killed. Listen, this will give you strength to stand, brothers and sisters. And our day if you dink around on the internet, if you think you type in the atonement, if you find what people are saying, oh new improved ideas on what does the, you know, salvation really mean, you'll find quasi-Christian, Christian in quotes, speculation on oh rethinking the atonement. Things of that nature are very popular today. I've even heard professed Christians say that to believe that God the Father in His holiness sent God the Son to die is, in effect, cosmic child abuse. The height of blasphemy, those words indeed, what do they deny? Not only the actions as the Bible declares them through Scripture from Psalm 22 to Matthew 27, but they also deny the holiness of God. Jesus Christ must die for God to be holy. And for us to be reconciled to Him. Penal, that is, there is a punishment to be paid. Substitution, which means in the place of another. Atonement, which means payment for sin. And that was Christ's death. Christ was the lamb that was slain, the substitute sacrifice. He, the perfect, sinless one, the only sufficient once and for all sacrifice. It must be the case. It was the case. It is the case. It happened in time, and we see it codified in Scripture from the Old Testament to the New, prophesied and fulfilled. The condemnation of the Son affirms the holiness of God. Speaking of substitution... Christ himself and the first person speaking through David declares as much as verses 4 through 6 continue in Psalm 22. "In In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And then notice the contrast. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. How could God in flesh, the perfect and only sinless one, be rendered a worm and not a man and be the butt of the jokes and the mockery and the derision, be despised by the people? Meanwhile, the prayers of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were answered. You delivered them, Lord. Why not your son? the answer is substitution in fact listen closely the reason that Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness the reason that God delivered Isaac and Jacob the reason any of us are saved when we cry out for salvation and deliverance is because Jesus Christ became a worm and was considered lower than a man was despised was rejected was condemned was made sin was crucified on Calvary because he was scorned by mankind and despised by the people therefore the fathers who trusted in the sacrifice to come could be delivered their cries could be heard otherwise they would have fallen on deaf ears and the justice of God would have demanded their destruction in the fires of hell the solitary sufferings of Christ that are prophesied in Psalm 22, tell us that he was condemned. He was condemned because God is holy and his condemnation was a substitute and by that substitute we are delivered. When did this happen, brothers and sisters? We need look no further than the text that we have been studying. Reading again, Matthew 27. It is the sixth hour, darkness has fallen over the land until the ninth hour, and in about the ninth hour, Christ cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama Sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, see, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, And yielded up his spirit. Psalm 22, fulfilled in the experience of the people. Secondly, this morning, the sufferings of Psalm 22, fulfilled in Christ, let us consider a second category of his sufferings, not just his solitary, but his social, the social and psychological sufferings of Christ, if you will. The fact that he was derided. Which means that he was the subject of bitter and contemptuous ridicule and mockery. Again, this is prophesied in Psalm 22. Let us continue, verses 6 through 13. But I am a worm, Christ speaking, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust. You at my mother's breast, On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. After ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Here we see the psychological sufferings of Christ endured on the cross when he was derided. He became the subject of the onlooker's derision. He was mocked. He was contemptuously ridiculed. He was made an object of the ridicule and the scorn and the laughter and the irony and the gawking of the people who passed by. Everyone in the town had heard of these events. We remarked recently in Luke 24 that the two despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus remarked to Christ, not knowing who he was, When Christ asks them the reason for their despair, they say, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who is not aware of the events that took place? Why was everyone aware? Was it because everyone treasured, looked to, had faith in the coming Messiah and recognized their substitute sacrifice, crucified on the hill that day? No. The reason everyone knew is because neighbors elbowed neighbors and said, Come, I want to show you something, and they all like a parade before a crass stand-up comic stood before this irreverent and made an irreverent display of Christ by pointing and jeering and recalling his claims and promises and saying, why don't you save yourself now? What an idiot, look at him hanging there. And they laughed and they doubled over in their sinful entertainment and watched as the Lamb of God was crucified and to a man without the revelation of God Jarring their heart from their sinful stupor, not a one understood what was going on before them, even though he had just echoed from the cross itself a very, the very words that should let them know Psalm 22 is being fulfilled before their eyes. And if they listened to their own words, they would have realized they themselves were fulfilling prophecy as they cried, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. There is a term, an apologetic term I've heard recently. Remember, one of the aims of this message is to give you power to stand. How do you know the Bible is the authentic and authoritative word of God? It is self-attesting, brothers and sisters. It contains within itself signals to its own authority, and we are beholding them today there's a term called undesigned coincidences and that is uh, something of note that those literary scholars who look at the text they see that if someone had just crafted a creative and compelling story they certainly would not have written it this way yet undesigned by the pen of man yet written indelibly powerfully and inspired by the Holy Spirit are these coincidences That is, events that coincide within the Scriptures. The way that prophecy is fulfilled is far more profound and realistic than anything man could come up with in his wildest imaginations. Under the pressure and stress of the moment, the Gospels record, quite honestly, the visceral reaction, just the overflowing emotions of people who watch what's going on. But as they record their words that they are just vomiting out of their mouth in mockery and sometimes sadness and so on, it is amazing because undesigned to them, God is fulfilling the words of old. And these events are coinciding to demonstrate that the word of God affirms itself and the prophecies written ages ago are taking place on Calvary, the day when Jesus was crucified. It's interesting to see that the very things that Jesus claimed for himself, the people tried to use as abuse against him. They denied his own claims, and they did so in their sinful rejection of him. They denied that he was sent by the Father. They denied that he had supernatural power. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, scribes, elders, they mocked. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They denied the very power that he claimed to have. In their derision of him, in their mockery of him, they said he was not who he clearly was. There's an irony here. What is the irony? The irony is this, verse 9. Yet you are he, this is back in Psalm 22, who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breast, on you as I cast from my birth. In other words, look at it this way. The people are saying, Jesus crucified on the cross proves that God has nothing to do with his life and calling. Oh, well, I guess he's not the Messiah after all. Oh, God will deliver him, let him rescue him now if he delights in him. Now this is an irony because the fact that God in flesh, the incarnation, took place in time is evidence of the greatest divine and sovereign involvement in the birth and life of any individual that ever has been born and will ever be born on this earth. No closer attention moving heaven and earth To to make way for a single birth has ever occurred in history. This one that was crucified before them was the incarnate Son of God. In the words of Psalm 22, while the people are saying God could care less about him, he is saying he is the one who caused the word to become flesh and dwell with us. That God the Father in his plan ordained and the Trinity in this consensual act, took play, uh, performed the most amazing miracle that would stagger the imagination for all of time, causing the Son of God to be born of a virgin. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Thirdly, under the psychological sufferings of Christ, as we imagine the weight of this falling upon them, there is an increase in the intensity as we consider who is bringing the charge. Before we uh, mention that, though, in context, I was watching, you know, sometimes we wonder, how are these echoes of derision relevant for our day? Have we heard, you know, people say this kind of blasphemous denial and derision of Christ in our day? Well, I heard as much two days ago, in fact. I listened to a debate. Dr. James White, representing Orthodox Trinitarian Christianity, was debating a cultist who denies the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. And for three, three hours, these men went head to head. And from the side, echoing the truth of Psalm 22 and Matthew 27, the whole of the Word of God, we heard the affirmation of Scripture that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And God is revealed in three persons through Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, from this quote-unquote Christian cultist, we heard what sounded virtuous and pious and religious. They held to a form of Christ, but in fact they denied His power. In so doing, they were mocking Christ, deriding Him. They were joining the voices who said, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Why were they doing this? Because in the same spirit of the chief priests, scribes, elders, and all the wicked who passed by Christ on that day, they denied that Christ was who he said he was. And in that debate, they were denying the Christ of Scripture. And cults such as the one I described must be recognized as the worst of heretics, and the worst of rebels, and we must pray that they repent and believe. When the Jehovah's Witnesses, when the Mormons come across your path, plead with them that they would know the true Christ who revealed Himself in Psalm 22 and prophetically and identified the perfect fulfillment in Psalm 27. Plead that they would confess their sin of denying who Christ said he was, and that they would bow before him in all his incarnate glory, pre-incarnate glory, and post-incarnate glory. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word become flesh, dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin, the perfect sinless sacrifice, died on count, died on Calvary's hill, was crucified, buried, resurrected. This is the gospel, exalted to the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And if he is not God himself, then there is no salvation. And all deniers are mockers, hell-bent mockers, joining the throngs of priests and scribes and elders and the rabble that cried out, Oh, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down. The intensity of these moments is emphasized by this metaphor. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. This was an area and region where the beasts were particularly formidable at the time. It was intimidating indeed to be stared down by these mighty, muscular, thousands of pound beasts of Bashan. And so it was that those who opened wide their mouths at the Christ were like ravening and roaring lions that prowled about him, circling their prey. They see the suffering antelope and the lions get closer and closer. They're toying with their prey until they finally pounce upon the kill and devour him with an enraged and gluttonous passion. These are the words that are employed to explain the intensity of what's going on, who were the bulls of Bashan? The bulls of Bashan were the Sanhedrin, those who were made that group that of leaders and rulers that, would, that was made up of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who mocked Christ. These were the ones who were the powerful cultural shapers, guardians, agents, rulers, influences. To help us understand, Again, the social and psychological aspects of Christ's suffering, consider this illustration. You've seen protests before. Seems like almost a weekly occurrence. They're easy to dismiss. We turn on the television and there's a bunch of rabble-rousers rioting in San Francisco. There's a handful of people or maybe even thousands marching on Washington. And who are they often protesting? Well, a lot of times political figureheads, leaders of the nation. But imagine if the tables were turned for a moment, because it's easy for us to dismiss protests like that. We may not find them very compelling at all. But imagine a protest where the president, the vice president, his cabinet, the Supreme Court, and all of the Congress began marching in Washington, D.C. against you. Now that would be an amazing feeling. Turn on the television. You see the president, you see everyone who has the power, socially speaking, to destroy your life, protesting you. It would feel like you were surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, like a wounded antelope moments from death with the lions playing with their food and toying with you before they pounced. And this was the situation, the crushing emotional weight of the sufferings That Christ endured for you and me. These are the psychological, the mental, the emotional sufferings and anguish that Christ endured. Psalm 22 prophesies. When did this come to pass? As we've said, it came to pass in Matthew 27. When the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Listen to what they say. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked him. They said, save yourselves. He saved others. Can he not save himself? He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Listen. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. Fulfilling to a T, Psalm 22, 8, the words of the mockers. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Last point this morning, the corporal sufferings of Christ, meaning that which He suffered in His body, in the flesh. Psalm 22 continues, to expound even these things that our Lord endured. Consider them in verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Notice, first of all, the first person agony of Christ. In the first person, Christ cries out from the Scriptures prophetically in this ode in Psalm 22, I am and poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. We see the first person experience of Christ in the word of God, in the brokenness of his corporal flesh sufferings. This is what Christ endured for us. It is easy to see how these things are fulfilled on on Calvary. It is easy to recognize that when blood and water flowed from his side, finding its source from his ruptured heart, that the wax that Psalm 22 described was dripping down the side of our Savior on Calvary. It is easy to see how hanging from those nails and pushing against the same, gasping for breath, that as hour after hour passes, the joints between and the ligaments which hold them together grow weaker and weaker and more tenuous, and bones begin to release themselves from the socket And his joints are pulled apart and begin to give great anguish, shooting pain through his mortal coil as he hangs in this most excruciating fashion. It's easy to see as the reed is lifted, he cries, I thirst, that he is dried up like a pot shirt and his body is so lacking the necessary sustenance that his tongue sticks to his jaws, dried up like a broken, dried out piece of pottery might find an archeological dig in the deserts. But notice, there's a second person intent. This is again one of those inter-Trinitarian interjections. Yet you are holy, we found in verse 3, yet you are He who took me from the womb. And then in verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Christ knew. That this was the sovereign plan of God that he endures such excruciating pain for you and for me. Isaiah 53 also comes to pass before our very eyes as we behold the cross in His holy word, where his stripes were borne ap- across his back, and by that beating and bruising, he was wounded and bled and bleeding for our transgressions. In that same passage, the word declares that he was crushed for our iniquities. But more than that, it declared that it pleased the Father, if you will, to crush Him. In other words, you lay me, Christ in the first person says, in the dust of death. In speaking to the Father, in this inter-Trinitarian conversation, there is a second person intent, the reason for this entire event. Christ is laid in the dust of death by the sovereign hand of the Almighty. Christ is the Father, like Abraham, leading the sacrifice of His own Son up the hill, but laying Him across the altar, and this time the knife, as we have recognized, indeed plunges into His side, and the full payment for our sins is satisfied in His flesh. And thirdly, and finally this morning, under the corporal sufferings of Christ, We see ourselves, we see the third person motives for this kind of thing. Verse 16, the dogs encompass me, that's you and me before Christ. That's the unregenerate state of man, carnivorous, wild, wicked, destructive, scavengers. A company of evildoers encircles me, encircles me not to worship, not to help, but instead to cast lots for his clothing, to pierce hands and feet. And as he counts his bones, they stare and use his suffering as an occasion for their own entertainment and laughter. They divide his garments among them, and for his clothing they cast lots, illustrating dramatically, graphically, and historically the self-serving, violent, greedy, prideful nature of sin that would sooner pierce, stare, gloat, steal, divide, and gamble away the things of God than recognize their Savior crucified for their sins. That is, until their eyes are opened. We'll talk about those open eyes in just one moment. Before we do so, we ask ourselves again, when were these things fulfilled? And we turn back to Matthew 27, Reading verses 29 through 37. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man Cyrene, Simon by name, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of of the Jews, and two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on the left. And so Psalm 22 comes to fruition in the gospel account, once again, of Matthew 27. Where is the hope in this picture? If you and I find ourselves among the sinners who pierce, stare, gloat, divide, and gamble, and are predisposed to all these things, born in our trespasses and sin, dead without a resurrecting work, of the Holy Spirit, where do we find hope in this text? Well, remember, there was one who was responsible directly for piercing this man's hands and feet, who lifted up his eyes on the course of events. This was one of the first among the Gentiles who would recognize the significance of this moment. After tombs were opened, verse 52, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, going into the holy city, appearing to many, listen to what happens, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How could this man's reaction be absolutely the opposite of everyone else. Everyone else looked at this pathetic, bleeding corpse crucified on this wicked instrument of execution and destruction, the height of humiliating death reserved for the worst of crimin- criminals. He was made a public display of mockery and derision, and they laughed and they spat and they scorned. And when they saw it, yet this man, a Gentile, a soldier, No doubt a hardened sinner prior to this moment looks at the same spectacle and cries out, truly, this was the Son of God. He had likely never read Psalm 22. The Holy Spirit touched a dead heart and caused his blind eyes to see. And he confessed, as with newness of resurrected spiritual life, that man right there is the Son of God and my Savior. Let us pray this morning that each of us, if we have not had this experience, the Holy Spirit would do for us the same, that with awe and wonder as we behold Him in Scripture, we would say, truly, this was the Son of God. Let us pray. Oh, dear Jesus, I pray that you draw our attention to your holiness, to your power, to your authority, to the great plan of salvation, to that which is fulfilled in time. I pray that through this means you would remind us that in the word of God, in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh is the intrinsic power to save. And for those of us who confess salvation this morning, whose eyes have been opened to our savior hanging on the cross for us, that we would find upon further study in the scriptures absolute power to stand. Thank you, Lord that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful in completing it even to the day of Jesus Christ's return or when we return to be with him. Thank you, Lord, for the promise and power of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.